Welcome back to a short series we've been doing on the book of Jonah. Now, this is a, a cleaned up, reworked version of a series of Sunday night talks I did this past spring, which were much more freeform and open to discussion. And I did them in anticipation of our fall series on the book of Daniel. This is uh, the fourth take on or the fourth podcast on the the book of Jonah. And last time we talked through the entirety of chapter one and ended with the great fish appointed by God swallowing Jonah. Well, that's where we're going to pick it up this week too and look at the question, why a great fish and what does it mean? Well, I'm going to read for us from chapter one, verse 17 through the end of chapter two, just so we are all on the same page of what we're doing here. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, while your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed, closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Most of the commentaries or discussions I have encountered with Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and the great fish, they tend to focus on one, whether this event really happened or not, and two, if it did happen, how was it physically possible? So for example, in their commentary on Jonah, Kyle and Dalich, some of the most important German commentators of the 1800s whose insults I still find to be useful and very helpful, they focus most of their attention on this verse on exactly what kind of sea creature this was, comparing and contrasting what sort of anatomy was required for a sea animal of some size to swallow a man whole. And in a lengthy footnote, they offer their candidates, Aquilas carcarios. Uh, I think that's how you probably pronounce it, or as we would call that animal, a great white shark. You know, maybe they're right. Maybe not. And as modern people who have been shaped by scientific materialism and in turn a very narrow or reductionistic understanding of the world that automatically excludes God's presence and action in the world up front. I mean, modern people take God's absence and non-activity as just given. Well, we can't help but be preoccupied with these sorts of questions, even as biblical authors largely were not. So whatever sea animal it might have been, and a great white shark makes as much sense as anything else to me, 
There is no naturalistic explanation that will satisfy our critics, that will satisfy the rules of the scientific game, rules that were set up in large part in reaction against texts just like this one. That Jonah was swallowed by a, a sea creature of some kind and remained alive in some sense in its belly is entirely an act of God. Full stop. And I don't find Jonah's story any harder to believe than that Jesus was crucified, died, put into a tomb, and on the third day raised from the dead, ushering in the new creation, which again is entirely an act of God. Of course, as a Christian, I assume all of creation is an act of God. So for Christians then to claim that this moment in Jonah's life is not merely unusual, but completely out of the ordinary, and in turn is entirely God's doing, well, I don't think that's irrational. And it's certainly not any more irrational than, say, uh, believing in the virgin birth of the universe, as so many modern people do. That said, it's not as though ancient people were any less curious about the world than we are or had inferior intellects. I mean, it's arguable that the typical person living even just 300 years ago had a better grasp of nature and could survive in it better than most of us probably can. No, it's rather that ancient people, they just weren't constrained by our categories of thought. And so they weren't concerned with our kinds of questions. So whereas we ask, how did this happen? Which is kind of the engineer's question. They asked, why did this happen? As in, what is the meaning of this event? So why did God choose to act in just this sort of way, as opposed to, say, just pulling Jonah aside and giving him a good talking to? Why not that? So instead of getting bogged down with what kind of creature this was, we ought to be asking, what do we make of all these strange details? And what do they mean? So when we read about the great fish, you know, in our minds, we're going to see whale or orca or great white shark. But the Hebrew mind sees something else entirely. This scene is within a matrix of images within the Bible that all are connected in one way or another, either with Gentiles or spiritual evil or both. The sea, as we talked about last time, is associated with chaos as opposed to, say, an ordered city or, say, a garden. In turn, it was also associated with the Gentiles living apart from God in rebellion against him. So if you've ever been on the open water, out in the ocean, or the Gulf of Mexico, or, say, on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, you can see how both the chaos of the seas and Gentiles living in sinful rebellion are in fact very similar. They both seemingly reject God's ordering of creation for their lives. They are wild and unpredictable. They are, in fact, many times deadly. Now, the wilderness or the desert in the Bible functions in a similar symbolic way to the sea. The wilderness is where the wild things are. And by wild things, it didn't just have in mind wild, untamable creatures like, say, lions or hyenas, though that's, that's true enough. But the wilderness is also the haunt of evil spiritual beings. This thinking about the wilderness is only superstitious, by the way, if there's no such things as demons. 
It's very much like the Day of Atonement of Leviticus 16, where two goats are brought before the Lord, and by the casting of lots, one of the goats is chosen as an atoning sacrifice, and the other goat is chosen to carry the sins of the people out of the camp. As the book of Hebrews makes clear, animals cannot atone for the sins of people. Only another human can do that. So the Day of Atonement is symbolic. It dramatizes what would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But for our purposes, let's focus on that second goat, otherwise known as the scapegoat. Leviticus initially was written with the life of Israel after the exodus out of Egypt in the wilderness. So Israel, by God's commandment, was arranged, her camp was arranged as a symbolic Eden, a light in the midst of the darkness of the wilderness with God and his tabernacle in the center of the camp. So we are intended to picture it in light of Genesis 1-3. through So the, the tabernacle is the garden sanctuary within Eden where the two trees were in the garden. The Israelite camp is the larger land of Eden, and the wilderness is the area outside of Eden. And so the high priest symbolically puts the sins of the people on this goat. He, he puts his hand on the scapegoat and then sends it out into the wilderness from the sanctuary through the camp to the place of spiritual evil in the wilderness to Azazel, a demon. Now, unlike the first goat offered to God, the scapegoat wasn't an offering to Azazel. No, it was the sin of the people being sent out from the holiness of Eden to the unclean habitation of demons in the wilderness where sin belongs. Now, as an aside, this gives shape to why Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tested by the Satan over the course of 40 days. It also gives context to our passage this upcoming Sunday in Luke where Jesus encounters a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. Now, within this symbolic thinking about geography, so the sanctuary, the land, the wilderness, and then you can add on to that the seas and the desert to that too, certain creatures came to be associated with spiritual evil as well. Creatures like snakes or scorpions or Leviathan, which is a a sea monster, and you see versions of that in the book of Daniel. It's mentioned in the book of Job. And by the time you get to Revelation, it is coalesced into a great red dragon, though it must be said, Revelation is not the first mention of dragons in the Bible. So almost all of these images are snake-like at root, with variations of wings or multiple heads or limbs. In fact, ancient people thought of dragons more as flying serpents than the way we tend to picture them as kind of dinosaurs like Godzilla or something like that. What makes this interesting is that the cherubim, the guardians of God's throne room, are described in Isaiah 6 as seraphim, that is, fiery ones. A seraph is a venomous snake, and when it bites you, it burns your body. That's what it feels like. That's the imagery. And of course, Ezekiel's descriptions of the cherubim go well beyond that. Even so, the imagery of the cherubim as seraphim, as fiery snakes, has led some scholars to argue that the snake in Genesis 3 was actually a cherubim, a throne room guardian who rebelled against God and became the accuser of God's people. 
I think that argument has some real merit. Now, as an aside, and this is really different, lions can also be in this evil category of, of creature too sometimes. Now, obviously, snakes and lions are very different, and we are used to thinking of lions as regal creatures, uh, like nobility, and most notably with, say, the Lion of Judah, and, and rightly so. But sometimes they're viewed in sinful terms, too. Think of it this way. Lions are nocturnal. They are cunningly lethal and can easily overpower someone and eat them. In the Bible, the Lion of Judah is dangerous, but he's good. That's what C.S. Lewis was riffing off of in his Chronicles of Narnia books. Now, in the book of Daniel, Babylon is like a lion, and Babylon is not good. Not at all. So this tells us something about why Daniel, for example, was thrown into the lion's den. It carries the same meaning as Jonah in the belly of the great fish. When I did a little extra digging, though, into Jonah 1.17, I looked up the Hebrew word used for great fish, and it wasn't one of the typical words used to describe spiritual evil in snake-like terms. Words like the nakash of Genesis 3 or the tanim, which is like a dragon or a serpent, or leviathan. But I will, when I looked up the passage in the Septuagint, I found an interesting nuance. The Septuagint, if you don't know, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible dating after Daniel's time. So Jewish scholars, what they did is they translated the Old Testament into Greek because so many Jews living generation after generation in exile from the land had actually become native Greek speakers. So what's useful about reading these passages in the Septuagint is that it is sometimes gives us a window, not every time, but sometimes it gives us a window into how later generations of Jewish scholars interpreted these same passages. Well, in Septuagint, the term used in 117 certainly can mean great fish, but in the broader, broader Greek world, it often meant sea monster. Now, I have no idea what sea creature the book of Jonah had in mind, but Jonah wants us, I think, to see it symbolically in terms of a sea monster, that is, in terms of spiritual evil like what with the snake of Genesis 3. Now, to get at this, consider Jeremiah 51.34, which was written a fairly good amount of time after Jonah, and how in that passage Jeremiah describes being conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in terms that it should be very familiar with the book of Jonah. He writes this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. Now, this is Jeremiah's description of what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem. And he puts it in personal terms, as if Nebuchadnezzar had eaten Jeremiah, like the sea monster ate Jonah. So if you look in the Hebrew, there is a familiar term for when a, a snake or a sea-type creature is more than what it appears. It's that word, tanin. And when you look at the text in the Greek, it's drakon, or as we would say, dragon. So Jeremiah has been swallowed by a dragon. He's been like a delicacy, a food the dragon enjoyed eating and is now 
in his belly, and he has been rinsed out. That is, he has been vomited out, just like Jonah. Was Jeremiah literally swallowed by a dragon? No. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar has become a proxy for spiritual evil. He is an agent of the dragon who has utterly destroyed Jerusalem, even as, get ready for this, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar for just this purpose, just like God appointed the great fish, the sea monster, to swallow Jonah. It's very much like the imagery of Revelation 12, where a great red dragon waits at the foot of the woman who represents Israel on the verge of giving birth to the Messiah. He's there ready to devour the child. That's a symbolic rendering of King Herod, again like Pharaoh with Moses at his birth, seeking to destroy the Messiah, and in turn, he committed the slaughter of the innocents, again like what you see in the early part of the book of Exodus. If that were not enough, consider the imagery of Amos chapter 9, starting with verse 1. And this is all judgment language of what God was going to do to Israel, the same kingdom that Jonah ministered to. It says this, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. So this is like throne room language. And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, Sheol, and, and Jonah mentions this too, Sheol was thought of as the realm of the dead. It's you have gone into death. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. That reminds me of the Tower of Babel. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And that reminds me of Elijah and the battles that happened on Carmel, the, bat, the single battle that happened there against the prophets of Baal. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Now Amos was a prophet, again, ministering just a little bit after Jonah, and he's describing the soon-to-come Assyrian captivity. And in short, Israel would not be able to escape God's judgment. Now hopefully you could catch how much of this section sounds like Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, but let's focus on the second half of verse 3, and I tried to emphasize it when I read it. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Now this sounds exactly like what Jonah tried to do. He first tried to sail away from God's presence, then he tried to hide, so to speak, at the bottom of the sea. But notice the language again. I will command the serpent, literally in the Greek, the dragon, and it will bite them. So was Jonah swallowed by an actual sea monster, a dragon? It probably felt like it, but I think in reality he was swallowed by a very real sea creature, and I have no idea which one it actually was, and frankly, I, I don't really care. 
But that creature was appointed by God, much as Nebuchadnezzar was appointed by God to destroy Jerusalem, and it literally swallowed Jonah, just as Assyria was literally going to uh, conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and take her away. But why? What's the meaning in all this? Now, as you follow the book of Jonah, and if you know the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, it is clear that like what Jeremiah endured later with the southern kingdom, so too would soon be happening with the northern kingdom of Israel through the Assyrians. So like in Numbers 21, when Israel rejected her God in the wilderness, God sent fiery snakes, that is venomous snakes, to discipline his people as in, listen, if you reject me for other gods, I will give you over to those gods. And guess what? They want to destroy you and they will. And it's very reminiscent of Romans 1 and how God gave rebellious humanity, again, very much like Pharaoh in the Exodus, over to their sinful desires and they hardened their hearts. So in other words, if God's people persisted in rejecting the true God in favor of false worship and false gods, that, by the way, all those false gods really originate with the snake, the Satan of Genesis 3, then God would appoint a snake to come give them what they think they want, and he will do it. The great fish then represents the coming Assyrian empire, and while Israel may try to flee from God's presence, I mean, she had already rejected him for other gods for over 100 years, God will find her, and in turn, she will be eaten by the Assyrians. Even so, like Jonah, it will not ultimately kill her. She will be resurrected back into the land. Now, that doesn't mean that some Israelites, if not many of them, would die. Yes, they did. But it does mean that God's promise to stay faithful to Israel was still intact, and a remnant would remain. So Jonah's life, whether he realized it or not, is a real life dramatized prophecy of what was to come. So these very real events look beyond their moment to what God was doing on a grander scale in the history of redemption. And that God does this sort of thing is not at all unusual in the Bible. There are lots of examples of God using people just like Jonah to teach his people through these stories and these events. And next time I'm going to show you. Next time we will look at a few examples of how this works before coming back to Jonah chapter 3 and 4.